Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi. And this week on the show, I have Taloan, who is, or aka the Traveling Clat, which for those of you who don't know what Clat is, I should probably stick around for the episode where Tal explains this word, which again, I, I too had no idea what it meant. But um, I believe he also has a YouTube video about it, where he kind of goes a little bit more in depth and uh, about what it is. Tal is a travel vlogger. He's currently stuck, quotations, in the Philippines. He decided to stick it out during this pandemic and make the best of it. He's been traveling for the last six years or so. He started at a very young age and just decided to take a different path. Not a lot of people take this path, which is why I think it makes it more unique and more interesting and more brave, I, w- I would say, probably. I mean, I think it's a little brave to try something that not a lot of people are trying, especially at a very young age. So I think it's a pretty cool thing that he's doing. I personally love to travel, but not travel in the high lifestyle, luxury hotels, fine dining type of way, which is fun and, and fine as well, but more, you know, see the less touristy places and go to places where maybe not everyone enjoys going just to kind of see what the country or the people or the the culture is really about. I traveled a lot growing up and I saw a lot of places and I think that that bug has always stuck with me. So, you know, I'm happy to talk uh, to people that that love traveling as well. And Tal obviously loves traveling. Uh, he's, uh, I think he said about 50 countries, which is unbelievable. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm way, well, I'm probably about a little over halfway there. There's a large bucket list of places that I still want to go. So I think as soon as this um, pandemic ends, myself and probably the rest of the world gradually and cautiously is going to start trying to go to different places. You do not want to go into a country where you have to go into quarantine for two weeks, where if you're only traveling for two weeks, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we'll have to see how things uh, evolve the next year or so. You know, I don't foresee the next year being good for travel, for hotels, for Airbnbs, for uh, tour guides, etc. the whole industry. But hopefully they will recover and we humans will, you know, fear less and... Um, just go explore the world more. I think uh, I think this there's a big psychological barrier that we need to even when, when this pandemic ends, there will be those psychological effects that that will stay with us for a while. I think we'll have to just get over them. The world is beautiful. It's massive, and there's a lot of places that we I personally still want to see. Um, while I'm I'm young and able-bodied, and there's mountains I want to climb, and there's um, places I want to hike and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, me and Tal talk about a lot of the different things that travel brings to you personally. It's a very unique experience that not a lot of people get to do that often, unfortunately, because of jobs, money, et cetera. Um, he's also, you know, he's, he's very upfront about the difficulties right now of being a travel vlogger. It's obviously the worst time to be in that profession. Um, but like I said, it's uh, it's a period of time, and uh, I think we will uh, 
there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know how long the tunnel is. I think if there's something to take away from the podcast is, you know, what we kind of talk about at the end where Tal says that the world is uh, not what the media makes it out to be a lot of times. There's countries where they tell you not to go and the people are very hospitable and people are nice and it's a beautiful place and the food is great. So just obviously you have to take precautions and you have to be smart, but you also have to take some chances sometimes and go to places and see places and just experience it for yourself. I think that's the most important. Life's short, man. Just go experience it. Just live it. Do whatever it is that you want to do, man. It's it's too short to just wait around for everything to be picture perfect and safe and exactly how you want it. Just go do it. Whatever it is. Obviously, not right now. This is more of a general philosophy for life. But yeah, you know, I had a good time talking to Tal. I love his enthusiasm. Just a fun kid with... Uh, his head screwed on right, head on his shoulders, as they say. You know, like I, I said in the podcast, when I was his age, I wasn't, I don't think I was half as mature or half as screwed on as he is. So I'm happy to see people like that, that have kind of a clear goal of what they want to do, a clear passion. Yeah, it's fun to see. It's uh, a little bit infectious too, you know, makes you want to go do that as well, makes you want to go you know, climb a mountain, swim a lake, <laughs> whatever it is, it, it gets you in that uh, in that travel bug slash mood. So without further rambling on my part, here is Taloran, aka the Traveling Clat. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Tal, how you doing? Doing good, my man. How's it going? Good, good. Thanks uh, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. Um, uh, I've been watching your videos for, for you know, for a minute, and uh, I uh, I really enjoy them. And obviously, when I saw the name, automatically, I knew where you're from. So I was, um, you know, it's good to see a little bit of uh, representation in the <laughs> travel vlogging sphere which you don't Definitely. see that much. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, maybe tell a little bit, of, you know, for, for the audience and people don't know who you are, what you do, uh, your channel. Yeah, sure. My, my name is Tall. I'm also known as the Traveling Clat Online. And I, uh, I make, I'm a travel video creator, in essence. I travel around the world making videos about my travels, food. Um, I've been dabbling a lot into uh, wildlife conservation as of recent. Uh, and just trying to promote travel and trying to promote um, sort of like a uh, more inclusive travel for everybody because uh, I don't exactly <laughs> fit the mold of what an average Instagram YouTube traveler looks like. <laughs> so I try to sort of shift that mold a little bit, show everybody, show people out there that everything is possible and anybody can really do what I'm doing. Um, and the mantra is just to, you know, I think the more people travel, the world will be a better place. So try to get as many people out there via my videos and my content. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Um, so what is, you know, I, I think, I, I think I saw any videos where you mentioned this, but what is clat? Cause I tried to figure it out. I was like, is it something in 
you brew? I was like trying to figure it out in my head, but I just I couldn't figure it out. You know what? What, what is it? <laughs> So I, I actually have a whole video. I made a, basically a documentary explaining it because really the, I'm going to tell you what it is, but you're going to be like, oh, that's dumb. It actually, in my opinion, has a really, it is dumb. It's stupid as heck, but it has a really, uh, a really cool story behind it because the, the, the word clat uh, is sort of the essence of everything that I've ever done in my whole channel, the whole mantra behind it, everything, the whole message um, comes from that word, and there's a lot of story embedded in it. But the word itself actually means testicle. <laughs> yeah, in what? In English? In kind what, of. What language? It's it's hard to explain. There was back in the day on the internet. Um, I don't know how old are you. How, how old are you? Too old, man. Apparently, <laughs> if I if I don't know all the internet lingo, yeah, uh, like mid thirties. Okay. When I was a kid on the internet growing up, I'm 23, so when I was a kid, there was all these websites called like E-Bombs World and Albino Black Sheep, and there yeah, was just yeah. like the... you remember those? Uh, well, E-Bombs World, not the other one. E-Bombs World, yeah. So they were like all... These were like the early days of the internet sort of uh, video productions and memes and GIFs, I guess, of the early days of the internet. And there was this uh, group called Group X. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. Um... And they made just like ridiculous songs and stuff. And they had this song called American Idiot, where in the beginning they're speaking in these really, really weird accents, like just extremely strange. No idea what they're saying. Like they're just talking nonsense. But at one point in the song, they say the word uh, testiclite. Um, <laughs> and so I was on a road trip. It was actually my first trip ever that I ever did in my whole life uh, on my own with, with a really good friend of mine at the time. And we just took that word, and over the course of like the 48 hours we were on the road, we just turned that word into mush, and eventually just became clat. And then, you know, after a lot of refining and refining and refining, eventually uh, the, the word clat just became my identity in school. This was around the uh, my senior year in high school. Um, and I just became known as clat. My friends were clats. Everything was a clat. So when I started my YouTube channel, around the end of that year, uh, it was clear that I would have to be the traveling class. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you made up a word, which doesn't exist. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, you basically took on the identity because every group when, when you're when you're kids, you know, and, and uh, you kind of, everyone has a nickname or everyone has, I don't know, there, 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 there's something linked with their identity with some sort of a nickname or an embarrassing moment. And you kind of took that and ran with it and just be, that became your whole moniker. hundred percent. I really em embraced the crap out of it and just, uh, you know, made it, made it what it was. And it sort of just latched onto me. Um, you know, it just became what it became what I was. So, yeah. you know, I was, I was talking, uh, I forget who I was talking to about this recently. Might have been my wife, probably my wife, but that's the only person I've seen for the last about two to three months. So that makes sense. <laughs> um, we were talking about, uh, we, we were watching the show with um, little Dickie, uh, Dave. And, you know, he's this like skinny, unathletic Jewish guy, and he's a rapper. And there's no world where this guy should be like, you know, a, a, a rapper. It just it, it doesn't fit the mold. But because he's authentic and who he is, he's not trying to be something else. He's not trying to be hard or gangster or say this or the other. He's just like, hey, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm this skinny little white boy. And because he, he claims it and because he owns it and he's authentic, 
it works, it sells. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's so important with with authenticity. Just be who you are. It doesn't matter what that is. People are going to be attracted to you. Just, but just be that. Don't be fake. 100%. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I pride myself on my channel the most. Because... And and I don't fault anybody for it. I say this with the utmost respect because it, you know, whatever whatever your grind is is your grind. You know, like if your grind is to come up with a persona or to fake yourself online, like by all means, more power to you. It's your thing, and some people latch onto it and enjoy it. For me personally, and I've had you know I've had uh, various amounts of success. I think what brings people and keeps people on my channel is the fact that I try to always keep it real. Like I I really do my best to be honest and respectful with these people and like really not beat around the bush too much. I try to limit the clickbait. Like I do what's necessary, but never like, I, I never want to take advantage of the people who are watching my videos. Cause I really am appreciative of the fact that they, you know, they're the ones who are essentially funding my adventures. They're the ones who are making all this happen. And so I really try to keep that level of respect with them. And I, I can see that people really appreciate it. Yeah. So yeah, you're currently in the in the Philippines. You're, I mean, it's it's not the it's not the worst place to be stuck with this COVID situation. But um, what's the atmosphere like um, right now? And and uh, you know, we talked a little bit, yeah, you know, before we went on air, and um, you said you kind of decided that you want to stay there. You could have gone back to the U.S., but you know, what's the kind of what's in the foreseeable future there right now? Uh, honestly, it's really <laughs> up in the air right now. I'm really hoping that it gets better because, uh, you know, with the Philippines, their infrastructure, their healthcare infrastructure is not fantastic on the island that I'm in. Um, it's the island that I'm on right now is called Mindanao. It's the one that's furthest south. And by all means, they definitely have good hospitals here. They're some of the best in the country. Um, but this, this island is way more provincial. There's like three big cities, like three proper big cities. And the rest are more like small little provinces or what they call barangays, like just these little little townships, municipalities. And, uh, you know, when I first started up, it was really crazy because I was traveling on what was what was what is thought of as the most dangerous part of this country is called the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao. Um, it's a it's a place that every if you look up any government, they're always all of them advise against going like it all has like advisors against going. And the whole point of me going there was to. Uh, uh, promote tourism to that region and as we were coming out of there and making it out of the autonomous region everything behind us was slowly closing down like like every city we had gone to would subsequently close down after so we went to this one city called Cotabato all of a sudden it closed down the next city we jumped off to was called Kidipawan then it closed down and so eventually we made it to this city Cagayan de Oro and uh, the day that I arrived basically everything just locked down it was just like all right all these provinces, all these provinces, all these municipalities are all closing up shop right now to try to, you know, maintain the virus. And uh, it was pretty calm in the beginning, to be honest. Like you, the, the first three weeks was relatively calm. There was a lot of checkpoints set up everywhere. They were taking it very seriously, which was really nice to see. Um, but then I don't know. Over the past maybe two, three weeks, it's become way more relaxed, like way more chill. And today they just opened everything up and they're having more cases than ever now. So I was really confused by the decision because I'm in a city now of about half a million, a little over half a million people. So there's a lot of room here for error. And uh, they're importing cases of people who are sick from outside to bring them here because they have the biggest hospitals here. So I don't really, I don't really know. The atmosphere seems really laid back now, which is surprising. Um, I'm a little nervous, a little on edge about what's going on. 
Yeah, it's um, I, I feel like all governments across the world are, are trying to balance this between not collapsing the economy and people dying. And they're trying to see what the balance is like. How many people dying is, is acceptable versus how much loss in, in GDP is acceptable. And uh, I, I don't know if anyone's really found, you know, some some you know places like New York, you have Cuomo that's saying like, no death is acceptable, even though, you know, by far we have the highest numbers, but he's, he's, it seems like he's really making an effort. Whereas other states are, you know, you'll hear statements like, hey, you know, you know, people have to die, people have to die, but the economy must chug on. And uh, so it's a fine balance where I think everyone's trying to figure out and and, and no one has figured it out because no one knows, you know, how do you put a price, a monetary number on someone's life it's, it's a little difficult so i don't know if uh i don't know if they'll figure it out but you know i feel like places like a lot of countries especially in the developing world um they have it a little bit harder because if they get you know if if it goes like wildfires there they're in a real problem yeah. they they like you said they not don't necessarily have the infrastructure and if it does it there um, they yeah they could see some serious issues and then and then, you know again if people die GDP goes down it's just it, you know if if you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that are going to die your economy is going to tank as well so the the two are very interconnected obviously yeah yeah it's a it's a sad scary situation here because it it just like you said if it does break out here seriously it's uh it's not going to be good. Especially in this part, you know, in Manila, I'm surprised because Manila is the most, uh, it's the most densely populated city in the world. They have about like three, 13 million residents living in like 12 square miles. It's crazy. And I spent a lot of time in that city. It is very, very crowded. Um, but they're managing to keep it somewhat contained. I mean, I don't know if it's because of the testing numbers and everything, but they, they've only had about 10,000 cases as of right now. And this was the second place on planet Earth to ever have a death from it. I don't know if you remember when it was really early on. Outside of China, this was the second place in the world that have a death outside of China, or the first place outside of China really? to have a death. Um, so they've had the virus since very early on, since like early early January, I think. And they've kept it somewhat contained, which I'm really proud of them for doing. But um, now it's sort of breaking out, but they're doing a pretty good job keeping it under wraps in Manila. But the problem is, once it if it breaks out in the provincial areas, it'll really do some damage because... They just don't have the infrastructure. I mean, I've traveled this country extensively, and you go to some places, man, like deep in the jungle, where there are people coming through and there are stuff happening and stuff. But it's so it's so far out, and if it comes to there, and like it could, you know, it could wipe out a village, it could wipe out communities entirely. I really believe so. So I'm, I'm hoping that it doesn't get out of hand here. I'm really, really hoping and praying. Yeah, it's funny how. Um... Testing is a big thing because you'll see places like the U.S. where the numbers are through the roof, right? You have, I don't even know what the numbers are right now. I think it's well over a million confirmed cases and, um, well, I think maybe 75,000 deaths already. But I, I believe, you know, more tests than any other country, maybe not, you know, per 100,000, but overall, we've, we've, I think the U.S. has done the, the most uh, tests. And there was a country, I forget which country it was, but it was a country in West Africa. And they had zero cases. This was like a month ago. And they asked, like, the president, how, you know, how'd you do such a good job? Like, zero cases. He was like, well, we don't have any testing kits. So, <laughs> no testing kits. 
zero cases, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of countries where maybe they're just, they either don't have the test or they're not willing to test. And therefore they keep their numbers superficially low. So I, I do wonder about that also. Yeah, me too. It's been weighing on me a lot, that, that specific thing. I also think about that, according to the United States, I mean, I know from every every possible reason, there's probably, it's it's safe to assume that there's probably a lot more cases in the U.S. than what's actually being reported. Um, oh, 100%. So like, at at least that point, double, if not there's so much like, <laughs> there's so much information coming out about this thing on people saying that it's super dangerous. But then when you look at what the potential actual numbers are, then you're like, wait, well, is it actually as dangerous as people say? Because if the numbers that people are infected are in the United States right now are X and X, but it's actually like 50 or 70% higher than that, then is it actually as dangerous as everybody says? It's it's kind of crazy. But that being said, like I just I just heard about somebody close to me, um, not, not like family or anything, but somebody I know, uh, a person I know that I know, 35 years old, that just passed away from it. Um, so it's like... I don't know. It's 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 kind of crazy. This thing is. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Joe Rogan's podcast, and I could tell how much he's perplexed. And a lot of that has sort of fed onto my brain a bit. Like I'm very very confused and skeptical about all the information that's coming out. It just feels like there's nothing solid or concrete that we can latch onto. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I personally had it. Oh, you had it early March. Yeah, early March I had it. I was. I was out for about a week, and um, but I I actually got tested, and uh, it's funny because they gave me the test back five days after the initial uh, test, so I was sick for and and after those five days is when I already started feeling better. So I you know once I started feeling better, they called me and it was like, hey, you're confirmed. I'm like, yeah, you know, thank you. I already knew I was confirmed those five days when I was just dying in bed, but. The thing is, like, I know of at least, off the top of my head, I would say five or six other people, uh, friends, neighbors uh, in New York City where I live, that had it, and only two of them got uh, tested. The others actually went, and they tried to get tested, and they couldn't get yeah. tested. So just with that little micro... Um, you know, if the, if we had six people, only two got tested. So you're talking about four people that didn't get tested. I don't know what it is across the country, but realistically, I mean, the numbers are at least at least double. If you're talking about, you know, I don't know, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1 million confirmed cases, realistically, probably closer to 3 million people that already have it. And then you have all these asymptomatic people who don't even feel sick. So. Yeah, I don't know. Then it's it's very tricky to to know what the real numbers are. But like you said, on the other hand, you have people who are thirty years old and and healthy, and you hear about these cases and they, and they pass yeah. away. So you don't, you know, obviously, if you have underlying issues or if you're obese or a smoker or over uh, sixty, you're in uh, you know higher you're you're in a higher danger zone, but or bracket, but like you said, it could happen to anyone. So you don't want to be that person and you don't want to be even asymptomatic and transfer that on to someone without even knowing. You don't want that kind of responsibility. So it's, uh, I think there's a lot of psychological components that go into this. You know, obviously the virus is very, um, it's dangerous, but psychologically, 
it's even more dangerous where we just, you know, w- when I see a show now and I see like people touching each other and mm-hmm. hugging and like shaking hands, I'm like, oh, oh yeah. you shouldn't do that. Just don't so do that. Strange, yeah. It's like, well, I'm what are like you doing? watching my own videos. From, yeah, I've had a lot of downtime recently, like just from New Year's recently, like Christmas. It's like, holy shit. We were around so many people like all the time hugging yeah. and dancing and like sweating all over each other like oh my god it's so taboo now and it feels wrong now like when i see people congregating I, like out of the corner of my eye and judging them i'm like what are you doing what are you doing you can't do that right now yeah, yeah. it's nuts it's nuts how it, it's changed the world it feels like we've entered like an alternate timeline planet earth and everything's just flip-flop now oh 100 100 percent. and um you know i think it's um it's i was actually going to say like it's probably not the best time to be a travel vlogger i mean traveling is completely done a 180 i mean as far as airbnbs uh hotels airlines all those industries are basically on the verge of, of bankruptcy yeah. um, no one's no one's booking no one's going on flights um and no one knows when any of those are coming back you know what um you know, what do you kind of foresee? What are you, are you talking to maybe other people, you know, from, from your industry, seeing, you know, what they're doing, how they, uh, you know, what, what do they expect to do in the next few months? Yeah, it is, like you said, a horrible time to be a travel vlogger right now. Like, at least on the, you know, there's a lot of people who have it a lot worse. I, I'm not saying this to victimize myself, but it is, I think, important to share what is actually going on. Um, and like, from my end, revenue across my platforms, like where I make money has gone down over 80%. Um, so I'm just bare, not making money at all, like anymore. And luckily, because you know I'm, I'm an American citizen, so I'm blessed to have the you know the PPE, the PPE, PPP, the you know the 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 thing that we're getting the uh, the loan, um, oh, the okay. stimulus. Sorry, that's what it was. Uh, stimulus package. Yeah. yeah, to get that, and so that like I'm gonna be okay, but it is a situation where me and most of my travel vlogger friends right now just not making any money um some are in worse off situations some are in better off situations but yeah because nobody's watching you know for for me on my channel a majority of the way that i would get views is by making these travel guides there's everything you need to know travel guides and those are sort of my bank of videos while i create other vlogs that sort of have a very short lifespan on the platform um but because now nobody's traveling you know, all my, my whole bank and my whole revenue stream is gone kaput because nobody's looking up travel guides right now. Because um, travel's on the last, it's the last thing on people's minds. So, from that aspect, is like you know, you're already hearing about Sicily, um, starting to think about paying tourists to come back to the island and to get people on there. They're going to do these crazy deals in the summer. But honestly, realistically, I don't see people having travel as some as a priority in their lives for at least the next year. And I hope I'm wrong. I really, really hope that I'm wrong. But gauging the way it feels and this just sort of the general vibe, it feels like this is going to have to start from the ground up. Like traveling is going to sort of start from the ground up again as a way that people, like specifically, I, th- I think about like the Western world and Americans a lot of times traveling to places like Asia, which I think I think it was just more recently starting to become less taboo for Americans to travel so far around the world to experience things like backpacking and cultural events and whatever. Um, and I think that's just going to reset the whole thing now. Like it's going to go back to square one and have to build back up from there, which 
for people like me who, God bless, I'm not in a situation where I'm in dire need for money. I know how to travel because I'm really well versed. I've been doing it for years now. This could actually be really interesting because it means I basically have the world to myself. There's going to be way less tourists out there. Um, you know, cultural sites and tourist sites like that are usually packed are going to be empty because nobody's going to be traveling. Nobody's going to be gathering. So it could be really cool. Um, but from another aspect, I think it's going to be a very, very uh, interesting time as a creator making a living. It's sort of going to be going back to a grind of what I was doing on the early days of YouTube, really trying to save my money and figure out how I can actually make a living doing this for at least the next year. So I'm, I mean, like I'm, I'm excited for the challenge. I'm always open to having to try to evolve and figure out new things, but it's definitely a little stressful. Like it's basically somebody just pulled the rug under your feet, like what your job was like, all right, boom, you can't make money doing this anymore. Figure out something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you see it across the board, um, but you know, I think, I think this might be a good time to remind people why travel is so good. Obviously, you know, I think people know this, but it's a good reminder to, you know, tell people, hey, these are the reasons why you love traveling and what it does for your soul, what it does for your mind, broadens your horizon. So, you know, let's let's dive into that a little bit and all the doom and gloom. <laughs> you know, I think people know yeah. all about it. Yeah, it's just it's it's part of it, right? Like you have to sure, you, have you know, to I totally it get it. It's, it's, it's on everyone's yeah. mind. It's almost like the icebreaker in conversations now. Yeah. Like, oh, how, how's your COVID experience been? But you got to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to. But you know, you have been, uh, you know, I have been watching the videos, and you have been doing them for for a long time. And it's almost like there's been. I kind of went back all the way to the beginning just to like get an idea. And there almost seems to be like this gradual evolution in, in both the channel and in yourself. You know, I looked over the videos and it seemed like the last, I don't know, I would say two years or so, you kind of really started taking it to the next level as far as creating uh, higher quality videos. Um, just overall, they look better. You seem to be more confident as, as, as a creator. You know, was there some point where you decided, all right, you know, I'm, I'm I understand the value. I'm going to take it to the next level. Or was this just some sort of an organic evolution of things that, you know, occurred while you were traveling? Yeah, there were, there were two very pivotal points that sort of turned it in, like, or basically described exactly what you're talking about right now. Um, the first one was when I, I went out with, uh, you know, I started this very early on. I started doing this when I was 17. So for me, it was very impressionable from the beginning. And there's not many... 17 year olds traveling the world <laughs> it was not a, especially not americans um or israelis by that mean because i'm dual national i grew up israeli american so it's like you know most israelis at that age are about to draft into the army so there's not much uh there's not many israeli americans that are traveling so it was very hard when i first started to relate to anybody um but i did find a group of youtubers pretty early on probably around my second year doing this um and we clicked really well and we did a trip through cuba and mexico together and on that trip, you know, they, they had started their channels way after me, but they had come into YouTube with a mission to create a living out of it and to make content that produces money. When I started this, I started it just to document my journeys, upload it for my friends and family to see and sort of fell into it rather than started it with a purpose. But when I traveled with these people who did start it for a purpose, they showed me how to get sponsorships, how to you know reach out to an Airbnb, how to reach out to a hostel, get a free night stay. It's like, wow, you could travel for so cheap as an influencer. Like, you don't have to spend any money. This is amazing. 
And you can actually provide a value because you know your followers are going to follow up and follow suit and go visit these places. And the brands love it. You can create videos for them. You can shoot drone footage for them, whatever. Um, and so that was the first, that was uh, April 2017. Now, the year prior to that, in the summer of 2016, I had, tr- I, I had had the crazy idea because I met some guy on my first year traveling in Toronto in a hostel who had told me that he basically went from Japan to Vancouver. I think he was from Tokyo to Vancouver, Osaka to Vancouver on a cargo ship as a passenger. And he had told me about that. And the idea was in my brain. I was like, okay, cool, whatever. I'll store that for another time. Maybe I'll do that one day in my life. But I was in Israel in the summer of 2016. I was doing a program with this uh, yeshiva, which is like, a for people who don't know what that is, it's like a Jewish study program in Jerusalem. And I wanted to figure out, I had this really ridiculous idea of like how... I've been going to Israel my whole life. I lived in Israel. What's a more interesting, lucrative way that I can get back from Israel to the United States? Like, how can I leave Israel in a more interesting way? I've always just flown. It's always just been like one flight in your home or two flights in your home. And then I, I was like, can I go on a cargo ship? Is that an option? Is that actually a real thing? And I started researching it. Within three weeks, I got myself on a cargo ship, flew to Italy, and boarded a, boarded a cargo ship from La Spezia, Italy, all the way to Miami to take me literally straight home. Um, and it was, it was like a crazy adventure and I documented it and uploaded it on YouTube. And at the time it was probably at about 2000 to 3000 subscribers and the videos flopped. They were great videos in my opinion. There's still some of the best videos I have on my channel cause they are true, true adventure and so unprecedented to anything else. It's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Nobody knows what I'm doing. And there is nothing like that on YouTube yet. There were some people who, documented their travels on a cargo ship and not the way that I did it. I did it like super, super in depth. Um, and so I uploaded it. You took a cargo ship from, from Italy to yeah, the from US? Yeah, from Italy to the United States. Sailed through the Mediterranean. It was uh, 18 <laughs> days. That's crazy. Yeah, across the Atlantic Ocean. It was, it was nuts. Um, and so I uploaded those videos onto YouTube and they flopped. They did horrible. Nothing ever happened with them. They just sat there for literally a whole year. <laughs> like... They just sat there for a year. And so after I uh, did that trip with uh, with those people, with those other YouTubers to Cuba and to Mexico, came back home, barely had any money to scrape by anymore. I was pretty much out of money. Um, and I just wanted to figure out a way to do this full time. Um, I really, really wanted to. It was sort of my last, like, last-ditch effort. So I decided I was going to try to circle the globe. I was like, I want to go around the world in a circle. Um, I think it'd be a cool concept for YouTube. It'd be a good idea. I might be able to get some views from doing it and maybe start generating somewhat of an income. I looked at the map and I decided I was going to go from Miami to Israel and then try to get, gather money in Israel because I had friends there um, and I had family there and I could work there because I'm a citizen. And I was going to say, I was going to just go from the U.S. to Israel and then figure out how I could gather up enough money to fly from Israel to the Philippines because I knew the Philippines was a really great place to build a YouTube audience and make money on YouTube. And that was the goal. And I spent all of my money that I had left. I pretty much had 200 bucks left in my pocket on a one-way trip to Israel. Um, And I made it to Israel. And within the first week of arriving to Israel, that cargo ship video blew up. Like it just went super viral. It was on the front page of uh, Reddit on r slash videos. It got on the front page of like dig.com. A bunch of news articles were covering it. Just the algorithm had just decided to like push it out of nowhere. And then it started pushing a bunch of other videos on my channel. And my channel popped off from 4,000 subscribers to 15,000 almost overnight. Um, 
and I had gotten a $1,500, like $1,500 out of nowhere, like literally overnight. And I was amazed. I was like, what? <laughs> Holy crap. I can't. Just from just, just, just from views. views? Yeah, it was uh, no partnerships or anything. It was just ad revenue from, from views because the video went proper viral. Like they were getting near the millions, like half a million views here, half a million views here, half a million views here. Like it was, it was crazy. Um, and that is really what I call the birth of my YouTube channel. And that was the moment, you know, sort of the moment where I learned how to travel for cheaper with that, with those other YouTubers a few months prior to that is where the, the itch began. But the fire, this is what I described, like sort of the fire that lit under my ass was, was when that cargo ship video popped off. Because when it popped off, I felt so inspired and I wanted to use all of that momentum to keep pedaling forward. And I never, I never stopped since then. It was just like continuous boom, boom, next idea, next idea. Like I did from there, I did another cargo ship journey and then the Trans-Siberian Railway and then came to the Philippines and did an epic series in Japan and then went back to the United States. Like I just kept on bouncing off idea, off idea, off idea, off idea to continue that ball rolling um and those are sort of the pivotal moments in my youtube career i would say that brought me to where i am today yeah so you've been doing this for about six yeah just years, i think it right? just passed the six 17? year mark on in april this year which is crazy <laughs> yeah and and your parents were cool letting a 17 year old go travel to uh, I I remember I think I saw like Africa and and all these different places they were just like yeah I'm going to let no. you I'm going to let you answer that question <laughs> what do you think <laughs> <laughs> Yeah yeah that's what that's what that's what I would think but you know you seem to have done it like don't get me wrong I you know I I traveled as well when I was when I was young and by myself and you know I lived by myself and everything but it wasn't you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like, yeah, sure, go. It was like a lot of headbutting, a lot of fighting with the parents. So I'm assuming there was some a of that lot as of well, it, no? and there still is to this day. Even I, uh, yeah. you know, I, I love my parents. I, I respect them a lot. But I always tell people this: like, if I would have listened, and this isn't like a thing to follow. It's not a model to follow. You have to feel it within your gut. Um, it's really not like a mathematical thing you can apply to everybody. But if I had listened to anybody who was telling me what to do, I would not be where I am today. It's in spite of the fact that I, I, I was so, I'm a very hard headed, arrogant person, especially when I see something that I want or like when I have a goal, I will do whatever it takes to get there, no matter what. Like I do not give up easy. Um, and so when everybody around me was constantly telling me, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Like what's wrong with you? Well, you got to get a job. You got to go to college. You got to, like, what are you doing? Well, you can't just travel, bro. I was traveling with a homeless person for the first three years. I didn't have any money at all. And I just had a, I had a fire, I had a passion behind it. Um, and so I just didn't listen to what my parents said. Every place that I wanted to go, they would say, don't go there. Don't go there. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. But slowly I started realizing, I was like, my parents, you know, when the country started racking up, after I'd passed like 10 countries and then 15 countries and 20 countries, I was like, well, hold on. My parents haven't even been to 20 countries. My parents haven't been to 15 countries. They don't actually know. They're saying this because of fear, because they haven't been to these places. And so I, once I started realizing that, and with all respect to my parents, I loved them to death. They were just saying this out of protection and they don't actually have any factual basis behind it. Yeah. I was like, it's not even a logical sort of conclusion that they're coming to. So if I, I can't listen to their logic because it doesn't, it's not, it's not logical. I have to go out and do these things myself and find out and see if things are really dangerous as it seems in the news and in the media and whatever. And, um, 
you know, I, I kept on coming back successful trip after another successful trip. Like this was an amazing experience and this was an amazing experience and this was incredible. And this was incredible. And every time they would have like some sort of remark about it, like you can't do this. It's too dangerous. You, you can't go on a cargo ship across the Atlantic ocean for 18 days. What are you, t- what are you talking about? You can't do that. And, uh, but I, I never listened. I, I couldn't listen to them. Every time they told me, no, it just made me want to do it more. So there was a lot of headbutting, but after this became my job around that summer, um, after sort of the craziness and the dust settled of me, like trying to figure out how I can make a living out of it. Once I started like running with it, then they started like, you know, once they started realizing it could be profitable, they were like, oh, okay. All right. Now we get it. Now we understand. My mom is still terrified to death of everything I do. <laughs> that being said, she's still terrified. Anytime <laughs> I'm going somewhere, she's always like, oh, it's so dangerous. This, that but I was trying to explain to her is like, I'm way more in danger. And I mean, I lived in New York for six months, but I, I feel way more in danger in New York in Los Angeles, in Miami, in Boston, in anywhere across the United States than I do in any of the countries that I've really been to. And not saying that America is a dangerous place by any means, because I don't think it is. But there are places there at home, you know, my parents live in Miami, that are way more dangerous than most of the places that I travel to. But it's just because of news and hype that they see things on the news and they're like, oh, I know that that place is dangerous. It's like, but you don't, you haven't been there. That that's her job though, man. She's a Jewish mom. Her job 100%. is a That's just that's what Yeah, it's what they do, man. Like don't take it away from her. It's, it's Oh, I let her do it. Do. I don't even argue no. with her anymore. Let it happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's too good. So, I mean, I you know, personally I think traveling is you know, I don't want to say it's as educational as school, but it's definitely educa- it's got educational mm-hmm. value. You know, it, it broadens your horizons. You meet new people. You you see other ways of living. You you know, try new foods. You just see see different things. It just it 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 makes you wiser. You know, in in a lot of different ways. You think you know? Do you see certain things? Maybe that if you know, you've been doing this for six years now. Maybe if you wouldn't have done this, your whole outlook on life. You know, let's say you would have stayed done college four years right or just kept living in miami would you be a completely different yes, person definitely i when i first started this my my good buddy moshe who's been in a lot of my videos he he circumnavigated half of the world with me when i was first doing my circle around the globe um he was my he's my one of my closest friends he was my biggest rival my biggest opponent against everything that i was doing he always always sort of crapped on my ideas in the beginning was like you shouldn't do this. You should go to college. You need to give it a try. You know, he, he was like the least supportive about it. And I, I say it out of love. Like I still love him. He's my brother, but he was extremely unsupportive about doing this. And by all means, it's because he was trying to protect me like my parents. Uh, but you know, like he, I sort of hit my stride with it and started running with it at a certain point in the beginning, like the first, uh, maybe three months after I decided not to go to college. And I started falling into the groove of like how I could travel for cheap um, and figuring out how the backpacking lifestyle works and going to hostels and whatever. Um, but he really tried to convince me to go to college, like give, give college a chance. You got to try a semester. And I was like, you know what? I'll listen to you. I'll do it. I'm going to give college a semester. I went to community college for like six months and I hated it. <laughs> like it was horrible. I was like, you need to pay for this shit. Like you got to, you have to pay for this. You have to go into debt to get a career. And it's just like I was sitting around and granted if I would have went to like a, a real school, like something with school pride and like parties and whatever, it would, maybe it would have been better. I, I don't, I don't doubt it. But, uh, 
being in that community college, like for six months, it just felt like jail after I had experienced the world a little bit. Like six months prior to that, I was, I traveled to Africa and Costa Rica and Jamaica and did a road trip across the United States and then did another trip, like a crazy trip across the U.S. and Canada. And I did it all by myself, like pretty much all by myself. Some friends joined me, but I was almost solo. And then I was thrown into a class with a bunch of people fresh out of high school. And I had already felt like I had just matured so much in those six months prior that I was like, I know for a fact now, like God bless Moshe for putting me in that position because I knew then that it was not for me. Like that's when I really knew that at least at that point in my life, it was not for me. Um, and I feel like I've learned so much on the road and I educate myself in other ways. You know, I read books, I listen to podcasts. I, I am a very, very inquisitive and like open to learning person. Um, I love to learn. I love, love, love to learn. It's something that I love doing, but it's got to be topics that I'm genuinely interested in. Like, I don't believe that the sort of college system, school system that we have in the U.S. is very, uh, I don't think it's really beneficial for a lot of people. I think it squeezes people out a lot of times, like me and a lot of my friends. Um, and so sort of learning all the stuff that I learned on the road. I mean, I've learned how to speak languages. I've learned how to, I've learned the history of entire countries. I've learned so much about wildlife. And none of it had to be, do with me opening a textbook because I had the hands-on real-world experience. Uh, maybe I can't write a, an essay about it, but I could definitely inform you about the history of you know, certain civilizations that have colonized the Philippines. And I could tell you about certain ruins in Spain. And I could tell you about history in uh, Central America and Costa Rica, about the, the, you know, the biosphere there and the, the fauna that used to exist there. It's like I, I could tell you a lot of things that I've learned outside of a classroom setting. So... I think that sort of classroom setting, the college mentality would have molded me into a very uh, sort of not goes with the flow, but just an average person. I, w I wouldn't be any different. I would just be like everybody else. My, I would aspire to get a nine to five job, but I'm happy that I, my brain didn't let me go there. It was sort of just like, and not saying that there's anything wrong with that, by the way, like getting a nine to five job, is totally good. If you are okay with it and that's something that's okay with your lifestyle and you jive with it, then by all means. But for me, my heart was not in it. I was like, I can't do this. I'd rather be broke, homeless, doing what I love rather than, you know, being miserable and making money. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think education is obviously amazing. We need educated people, but I don't necessarily agree with the template, with the format that you need to go to to an institution for uh, whatever it is, four years, you know, rack up debt of six figures and then end up having to pay that for the next 20 to 30 years. I don't necessarily, and, it's, and that's specifically for the U.S., you know, if you go to Israel and other countries, um, I don't, I mean, there's not really any debt. I mean, I don't know how it is. You're pretty much the yeah. same as Israel. So specifically in the U.S., it's insane that you have to pay back for the next 20 to 30 years that the four-year education and on top of that when you're 18 i mean realistically most people don't know what the hell they want from their life at 18 so to to pick a major and to pick something that yes this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life so this is what i'm going to study for four years it's a bit unrealistic you know who i am now versus who i am at 18 i don't even know that person that's a completely foreign <laughs> human that you know i don't even know if i would i don't even know if i sit down with an 18 year old for a couple oh months, man you're not making him sound like a really nice guy <laughs> oh dude completely just so immature like i look at like a lot of other you know like yourself for example and i have other friends that i know and they're like in their 20s early 20s and 
is so much more mature. You know, at 18, obviously I did go to the army and, and that definitely matured me um, substantially. But prior to that, it was just, that's not a kid that knows what he wants to do for the rest of his life. You know, I, you know, only I would say when I hit my thirties, I really started to understand myself, what I want to do. So to tell the 18 year old, yeah, uh, come pay us uh 200,000 or whatever it is. Yeah. It's a good two, two fifty, Right. And uh, let's, let's keep you in debt for 20 to 30 years and uh, pick this major and you're set for life. No, that's, that's a lot of times for the most part, that's not what happens. And then let's get you a job where you're probably not going to like it. And again, like some people do like it and some people do love their major and some people do love sitting in a class. Like, oh, that's fine. It's just you should do what you like. And I think now with COVID, we're seeing that you don't necessarily, especially with, with technology nowadays, you don't need to go to an office. You don't actually need to go to a classroom. You can be in the Philippines and you can take uh, classes in, in Harvard, you know, via internet it, it's all online it's all possible and you can uh work remote and just you know be as efficient so i think this has taught us that we actually don't need to be physically in these locations and it just opens up a whole new host of, of possibilities and opportunities that maybe weren't yeah before. yeah definitely i think the uh the whole aspect of remote learning and remote working has been super prominent during this time So are there any countries, first of all, do you know how many countries? Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Um, all, all, uh, all continents or there? I haven't been to South America yet and I haven't been to Antarctica or Oceania as well. Yeah. Like Australia, New Zealand. Um, yeah, I haven't been there. Antarctica for me. For me, it's only Antarctica. So we should do a, a shared a shared voyage <laughs> to Antarctica together. We'll go on a, down. your partnerships. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, <laughs> Antarctica. Yeah. Um, so do you have any grand plan to kind of visit all the countries in the world? Is that something you Well, being an Israeli, it's not a possibility. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. That, that, was, yeah. That was my next question. About, yeah. For the people who are listening, there's about 30-ish countries that ban you from visiting just because you are Israeli. Um, and granted, I have an American passport, so I could get into these countries, but still, by law, for example, going to Malaysia, it's risky. It's like if they somehow find out, and for me, I'm a person who has my whole life history, legacy, religion, nationality on the internet, it wouldn't take much to find out that I am Israeli. Um, you know, in, And you would have trouble getting into... After, yeah. It's, uh, you could face like... Yeah. death you could face torture you could face jailing and uh i'm sort of in the ask not 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 in not in, not israel, in israel just to be clear in those countries <laughs> yes in places that ban israelis yeah, from yeah, traveling to just there. to be clear um there's some countries that are way more chilled out and yeah. laid back about it and there's some that are like indonesia is a place i would risk going to because they have unformal ties with israel and even though they do ban israelis from coming they are still open to it like especially an israeli american they wouldn't care a place like malaysia they like blacklisted my friend for coming um, once he posted a picture with his Israeli passport in front of the Corona Tower, Petrona Tower, it's not Corona. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they, they, they warned that he could be jailed and killed if he comes back to the country. So it's like, there's, uh, I don't want to play with fire. I'm sort of holding the aspect of, I, I don't want to visit any countries that don't want me there in the first place. Um, even though there's places I'm dying to go to, like my family heritage traces back to Iraq. 
dying to go to Iraq, but I don't think it's a possibility, not anytime soon at least. Um, but no, the goal has never been, the goal was never to visit every country in the world because I knew just one, because of my nationality, it would kind of be impossible task. Um, but I think over the course of the last couple of years, it's turned into more like, what am I doing that's less, like, I want to do stuff that's less self-serving. Um, I want to be less about me, 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 and like my experience and my experience and more about how can I, how can I help and how can I do more with what I'm actually doing? Um, and that sounds like so cliche because there's so many people who say that all the time, but I've genuinely been struggling trying to figure it out. But one of the strides that I've hit recently that I've seen has really been working well um, is just the power that social media influencers have over promoting tourism to places like the Philippines tourism industry especially in the last five to 10 years has almost been a hundred percent reliant on the fact that Instagrammers and YouTubers flocked to this country and blew the tourism out of proportion. Um, and I'm, a, I'm somewhat a part of it. I don't say that I'm a hundred percent the reason, but I've definitely had my part in doing it. And, uh, I've wanted to sort of, I've seen the power of that. And I, I sort of did that in Sri Lanka now for three months. I was living there and the whole goal of the trip was just to promote tons of tourism there. And it worked to a really, really, really good degree before the whole COVID uh, thing happened. Um, but I've sort of been noticing that, yeah, going to uh, communities that need the help, that need the tourism infrastructure, and working with them locally, figuring out what they want to do, how I can help them, um, and how I can promote tourism to there, even if it ends up costing me more money in the long run, is something that I found a, like, a lot of passion behind. And just connecting with those human beings, like actually sitting down and having conversations and connecting with them for real, like, learning their problems and their difficulties and what they want to do and what they don't want to do and how they want to show people the world and how they want to show people their communities, sorry, how they want to show the world, their communities um, has been something that I've gotten a lot of passion about and also a big passion for wildlife conservation and, you know, promoting uh, ethical tourism when it comes to wildlife. And uh, I think the goal posts have shifted from, let me be this YouTuber who makes travel vlogs that are fun because I enjoy travel to, more of like, I want to be more responsible and do good things to the world. Um, I follow the aspect in Judaism of tikkun olam very seriously, even though I'm not extremely like religious by any means, but I think the, it's one thing that we have in Judaism that I hold very, uh, very, very dear to my heart is this concept called tikkun olam, which in English basically translates to like fixing the world or healing the world, which uh, it talks a lot about how Jewish people sort of have a duty upon them to almost put in more good into the world than bad and to leave the world a better place than they, than they came into it, you know, when they die. And that's something that I really, really want to try to figure out how to do. Um, and so th that's sort of the goalpost shifting from let me travel to every country and let me just do whatever to more like, let me take this easy. Let me travel to places that I'm genuinely interested on. Let me make connections with these people and make sure that I have a network of people that I could either help out or, watch them grow or do something. I just want to be able to do something that helps people moving forward. But that hasn't materialized yet. I'm still letting that sort of fall into place. Yeah, it's a process. I mean, so so, so take me through what, what's the process? You reach out to the Sri Lankan Board of Tourism and you say, hey, you know, I want to I travel in your country. I want to help you guys share your story, bring more tourists, etc. And then kind of former relationship and, and with uh, Sri Lanka was an interesting one. Cause they actually, the tourism board rejected me, uh, the first time I reached out, <laughs> um, I actually met them in person in New York in uh, the New York times travel conference and they pretty much ignored me. 
Um, but I think it's because uh, a lot of these tourism boards, and rightfully so, they have an aspect of the type of traveler they want. And generally, it's a white Western looking person that they want, you know, wearing the sunflower dress and the sunflower hat and the six pack abs. And they, they have an image of what they want to promote tourism to, which is by all means fair. Go for it. That's what brings money to your country. I get it. Um, but a lot of times they don't look past the surface of just the Instagram picture or the content that like I create, for example. Um, and so, yeah, with Sri Lanka, I was, it was rejected by the tourism board the first time I reached out to them and talked to them. Um, but a friend of mine, Steve, his name is uh, Steve Yallo is another travel channel. Um, he had worked with a company there and the tourism board called tuktukrental.com and they rent tuktuks for people to travel across Sri Lanka. And, uh, and they host this thing every year annually. It's called the tuktuk tournament. Um, and they invited him and another person to uh, make a documentary about the Tuk Tuk tournament. And so he invited me because we had met on YouTube. We had done a really cool trip together and we wanted to do something again together, something bigger. So he invited me to come do that with him. Um, while I was there, I got in touch with the tourism department, ended up ending on a pretty bad note with them. <laughs> but that's can't get into too many details about that. Um, but yeah, we... Uh, okay. That's how I came to Sri Lanka initially, and all the flights were paid to there, and pretty much I had uh, living spaces living at the offices of Tuk Tuk Rental, and um, it was a really, really sweet deal, and I was able to travel the whole country for about three months for an almost non-existent budget. Like, it was ridiculously cheap. Sri Lanka is already a really cheap country, but for me, because I wasn't paying for my own Tuk Tuk Rental, I wasn't paying for my accommodation at all, pretty much, because if I wasn't sleeping in the Tuk Tuk Rental offices, I was being hosted by hostels or Airbnbs or whatever that wanted me there. And uh, my expenses just became almost nothing. Um, so I was able to travel in depth this country, really explore it and promote tourism to a lot of really, really unknown places. Um, and it was amazing. It was a fantastic experience. One of, like, one of the most incredible travel experiences I've ever had. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what is, I guess, what's the key to sustaining six years on the road? Is it? There's obviously this is one of it reaching out to, to tourism boards and maybe some private corporations, but is it figuring out hacks like cheap food, uh, hostels, uh, trains? I'm assuming probably the most expensive is you know, uh, hotels, uh, yeah, like to sleep every night. Um, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the country's food is fairly, fairly expensive, inexpensive, yeah. uh, so it's probably tr transportation and and just a place to put your head those are probably two of the biggest expenses. So, you know, what are some good travel hacks that maybe you can give people that want to do what you do for? <laughs> I always tell people least. it's lower your standards and lower your expectations. Like that's, that's going to help you the most is uh, a lot of people have this aspect that travel is like waking up in a five-star hotel uh, in front of the Eiffel tower, <laughs> sorry, in front of the Eiffel tower, having like a croissant on the balcony while you can see the Eiffel tower. It's like in reality, that's about 700 bucks a night. <laughs> you want to pull something like that off just so you can have your one Instagram picture in front of the Eiffel yeah. Tower. Uh, exactly, you know, exactly. On the other hand of that, you could go find a really shitty hostel in some back alley by Champs-Élysées that costs you like six bucks a night that doesn't have a shower, that doesn't have any heating, and it's the winter, and they'll let you sleep there in the freezing cold. But you wake up in the morning, and you're about a 10-minute walk from the Eiffel Tower. It's still travel. It's just travel at a different standard. Um, so when I first started traveling, well, I came in with no expectations and no standards, which was really good for me because I didn't really even think about travel as something that I ever wanted to do, or I never really thought about vacations. It was just not something that was on my mind. 
uh, like traveling and vacations and bucket list destinations. It was just nothing that was ever on my mind. Um, so I came in with zero expectations and I was able to like just lower my standards to a point where I was content with sleeping on the street some nights. I was content sleeping in the woods some nights. Like I was content having nothing and just being happy to be on the road, to be traveling, to be experiencing stuff. Um, so that's always the biggest tip that I give people is just lower your standards to absolute nothing. Don't put yourself in danger because, you know, you can do stupid stuff when you do stuff like that, when you lower your standards. Obviously, keep heightened alerts at all times because you never know. Like, be aware of your surroundings, but lower your standards. Like, don't hold yourself to any sort of expectation because you saw it online or because you heard about it. Let whatever happens on the road happen because the I always guarantee people the best experiences will come from stuff that hasn't happened to other people. You're not going to have your favorite travel experience under the Eiffel Tower. I guarantee you of that because it's just, it's been done. <laughs> like it's not going to happen. You're going to have your favorite travel experience, maybe in some back alleyway in Amsterdam or underneath a bridge in Berlin or something. Like it's not going to be, it's not going to be what you expect it to be. And you just need it to, you need it to, to let it all happen. And the second you lower those standards and lower the expectations, um, you know, you're willing to spend a lot less on a hostel. You're willing to spend a lot less on breakfast. Sometimes you're willing to skip a meal. Um, something that I did very early on because a lot of my first trips were through Europe, like in London. I would I would go to London a lot because I made a lot of friends there and I just knew the city really well. Um, instead of taking the tube or the, like the subway there, uh, you know, which would cost you like two pounds seventy five, which is about maybe four bucks to hop on the train just to go like five minutes in one direction. I was like, I don't have that money. I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna do it. I'll just walk. So I would walk forty minutes across London instead of yeah. taking the train for five minutes because I just didn't have the five dollars to spare. And uh, it was really cool because I could see more of the city and random stuff would happen along the way. And I could really feel and see London by walking for a long time. Yeah, it was always like inconvenient. I always walk up to my hostel or my Airbnb or whoever hosting me like sweaty or gross or like, you know, I, I just walked across the city for 40 minutes and I would do that all the time. So it's not conventional. It's not typical. It's not, it's not pretty. It's not perfect. But that's not what travel is. Travel is not like a luxurious thing. Like true travel is not a luxurious thing. A vacation can be luxurious, but true, true travel, like experiencing the road the way it should be, or maybe not the way it should be, but the way it is for what it is, it's not luxurious and it's not beautiful. It's sweaty, it's gross, it's grimy, it's full of diarrhea and stomach aches, and uh, but that's part of it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I did a lot of that in my, my, in my 20s. I, I traveled, yeah, I, I wouldn't say extensively, nothing like what you're doing, but, you know, a good amount. And I traveled to a lot of different countries. And it's definitely that, you know, I stayed in, in shitty places and I saw and I took 15 hour. I took a bus ride once from Brazil into Bolivia uh, for four days <laughs> on a rickety bus with seats that weren't attached to the actual bus. So every time you'd hit a bump, the whole seat would just fly up and. You know, a guy with a chicken was sitting next to me and just the, the whole experience, right? But it was so much fun. And I feel like that's, I mean, not lost, but there's, I feel like there's kind of two type of travel vloggers that you see. People like you that actually are, you know, what what they call moochie layers or, or travelers, you know, with, with the large backpack and you're, you're grinding and you're seeing all these places and you're traveling for cheap and you're having the good experience. And then you have those more uh, i would say like commercial ones where you see this like chiseled <laughs> dude and this girl in a in a in a in a in a pool with flowers overlooking this beautiful vista in like uh i don't know some island in barbados or something and 
and they're just like, yeah, I just woke up like this, and everything's like perfectly set with like, uh, you know, candles around and this bed just by the window. Like, everything's perfect, right? And beautiful, yeah. and they're just making it like, oh, yeah, this is just a regular. <laughs> Everyone's Wednesday. just like super like, sexy. Oh, There's like that, that, like that so deep cool. tropical house music. Yeah. And, like, it's, it's, it's become an image. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and honestly, I, I hate it because it almost seems like they're not ha happy or enjoying it. It almost just seems so fake. It almost like they got the room for like 20 minutes, set up the shot and left the room. That's what, what I get from it. You know, what's funny. Like there's this, um, I forget their name. I, I, I don't want to say their name anyway, but there was this, uh, mm -hmm. van life couple that I used to follow back in the day. Cause I, I was like, Oh, you know, they, they've been to some cool places and they had a dog and you know, it's, it's cool. And then one day I see them, it's so random. I see them park underneath my house in Brooklyn. And they get outside of their blue van. And they must have done an hour of just prepping, <laughs> just setting up the shot to look like, oh, we just random. You know, they, they put on makeup and they got dressed. And just, I'm telling you, like a whole hour of setup just to get this shot as if, oh, we naturally just got here. I was like, you know, I understand it and I kind of, I I accept it because that's what, you know, your brand is. But when you kind of see it, when you pull the curtain and you see the behind the scenes, quote unquote, it's a little less um, attractive. You know, it's it's a little, it's it's it goes back to authenticity, what we spoke about in the it beginning. It kills it's, the it's facade. You know, it just murders like the facade. Kinda, it takes the facade and just yeah, destroys it. I, I, yeah, it, it loses, like, it left a bad taste in my mouth. And I was just like, okay, you know, I, I, I see what this is now. And I yeah. just, I, I didn't like it. No, I get it, man. This That's a, it's actually a pretty a, a conversation that I'm pretty passionate about because I think that it does, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. I also, from the other aspect, I have a lot of friends that do that. Like a lot of my good friends, like, and they've become genuinely really good friends of mine. Um, you know, and I, when I travel with them, I have to partake in it. Like I have to take those pictures for them sometimes. Um, and I have friends that do it like to varying degrees, some that take it to the real extreme, some that don't really care too much, but it's something that I've <laughs> been so off put by, um, that I just know that I can never do like the app Instagram. I literally only have it because I have to have it. I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate everything it stands for. Um, I hate what travel is on Instagram because it's, it's nothing more than just people who usually work nine to five jobs who follow these couples like you, like that you just mentioned. Um, who think that that's what travel is. And then they scroll through that feed and they see that picture for two minutes. They zoom on in, a, they say, they zoom in and they say, Oh man, I wish that was me. And then they flip through and they go somewhere else. Like that's what travel is to them in their brain. Um, yeah. And so it does, I think it does actually end up doing way more damage than it does do good because it's just projecting these ideals onto people that they think like, this is what they need to do. This is what they need to aspire to if they ever travel on the road. And it just destroys, it destroys the whole aspect of traveling because all people think is that they need to be like these sexy bikini beach bodies in Bali in a villa. Like, and th th that's all they think they need to do when they're on vacation when they're traveling. Um, and I definitely think that it makes the world a worse place. I really truly believe that. But from the other aspect of it, I to I so respect it. Like I so, so respect the grind because I see the work that goes into it and I respect it because it's an art form. And you're like, at the end of the day, you are making an honest living doing it. Like it's, it's your job, do whatever you do. Like, but I, uh, I always struggle with that in my brain. I'm always like, 
from one perspective, I hate it so much, but also from another perspective, I, I have so much respect for it because I could never do it. I couldn't. I've tried. I definitely tried. <laughs> I tried my first year on the road when I was circling the globe. I tried to be that. I tried to do the Instagram, the cliches, the, the posing in front of things, the setting up the shots, the taking a million pictures in one place, the Photoshopping the pictures to make them look great. I can't be... Can I curse on your podcast or are you PG? I can't, Dude, I can't be fucked. Free. I cannot free. be fucked to do it. Like, I hate that. It <laughs> ruins it for me. Um, it just, like, that whole faking the shot or posing in front of some rock just to get some picture that you put on Instagram that somebody will float by for two seconds is just, like, it, it means nothing. It just, And I feel like it almost devaluates the place that you're in. Um, so I've been very off put by it, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that you said. But also from the other perspective, it's like I always try to play devil's advocate in my brain. Like I, I so respect what they're doing. Like I really, really, really respect it because it's it's hard. It's not easy work. It is not easy work to be in a beautiful location, like be in front of the Grand Canyon. And instead of enjoying the view and focusing on what you're there and being present, you have to divert your attention to taking an Instagram picture and like well, then worry about editing it online. And then at the end of the day, you figure out you never really enjoyed the place in the first place. That's that's the major problem. And like, look, I don't have a problem with it. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. It's just, you know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, everyone has something that they like, right? Some people like uh, reality TV, others like uh, fiction or drama or whatever it is. Some people like jazz, others like rock. So, you know, everyone goes in a specific direction. And, and nowadays there's so much content and so much variation and so much available things that you can consume online and you just you, you gravitate yeah. towards whatever it is that you like and i just happen to like something that's a little less um i don't want to say superficial but just less um dramatized just seems a little bit more authentic and hey like some people for them that is authentic and that's fine like that's completely cool but again just not exactly my cup of tea but anyway have have, have you been to you know, if, if kind of like spin off of that, have you been to, to places where, you know, you were really uh, expecting or you really wanted to go there uh, and then you get there and you leave there and you're like, oh, <laughs> that was kind of disappointing. <laughs> I didn't really, it didn't live up to my expectations. One place, of what I thought one place in the be. whole world, out of all 50 countries that I've been to, there's only one place that I, I genuinely dis disliked and I really had a bad experience in and that was Cuba. Um, everywhere else, I really can only find the benefit really? in where I've been out of all the 50 countries. Like some places I like more than others, but you know, I don't really have any majorly bad experiences in them. Cuba was the one country that I legitimately could not recommend anybody to go to. Like, it's just because, you Why? know, when you, when, once again, like I fell into the trap of, I got inspired to go there because I saw the videos of like you drive around Havana in the pink car and smoke a Cuban cigar, you drink some whiskey. Beautiful beaches, yeah, nice yeah. city, people are nice. When I went there, because of the way that I travel, I can't I can't enjoy things at surface level. It's the same thing where everywhere that I go, like in the Philippines or in Mexico, I always, always, always dig too deep into the politics, into the system, into the society. Because I want to learn, because that's how I learn. That's, I'm inquisitive about these things. So when I went to Cuba, I, uh, I just I try to have conversations with people. I try to learn what the actual situation was going on. And it's a horrible place. It's a horrible place. The situation that's going on there um, with the government, it's just, 
it's you know it's so sad we we traveled out of Havana I only spent like two days in Havana total out of the I think I was there for 15 days um a majority of the time I spent on the countryside and in the farms and and some towns outside of Vinales and um, another town called Puerto Esperanza and Baradero. And uh, I just wanted to interact with locals. And we got scammed more times than I could count on that trip because, and I don't even blame the people. It's like they have to scam because it's life or death. Like it's literally, if you don't make money off this tourist, I'm going to, I might die. You know, we heard stories about how in, in Havana, um, you know, you can't buy a house. You can't own property there. You, you get put in a house by the government, and then once the house dilapidates, they just throw you into a new house. There's barely any new construction going on ever, and they're just using the same old buildings from, like, the 50s and the 40s, and they're constantly houses falling onto people and killing them. Like, it, it's a constant problem. And then from the other aspect, you don't even know if you can believe that because it's been told to you by a Cuban in Cuba. Um, and almost, like, 90% of the Cubans in Cuba have this complex going on of, like, they don't know if they can tell the truth if they have to lie to you or what, like it was so hard to tell the truth of what was actually going on. Um, I think I cried and I don't cry often, but I think I cried at least once every day during that trip, me and my whole group of friends that I, that I traveled there. Um, we went out to the farms, uh, outside of this town, outside of Vinales. And we spent some time on a farm with a few farmers, like talking to them, riding horses, like just getting to know how their life is. And there was one guy who told us how he, he, the direct quote he gave me was he would rather take a flight out of Cuba and not know if it was ever going to land, like taking the risk that it might crash rather than stay in Cuba because he just feels trapped. It's a jail. Like he can't swim 30 feet off of the coast because they'll just shoot him. Um, he doesn't have shoes. He's a farmer. And he doesn't have shoes in the Cuban heat. Like that's like being in Florida. It's crazy. Uh, you know, the government comes and takes 90% of everything he owns. They leave him with a loaf of bread, some milk, and that's it. He, he doesn't own anything. Everything he works, everything he raises, all the hard work, just gets taken away from him. Um, and so, like, it's – and, you know, and everything was disappointing. The food was disappointing because they don't really have food there. Like, all the Cuban culture, all the Cuban food, the cuisine, it's been made what it is in Florida, in Miami, because they've been allowed to use real ingredients to cook, to clean, to do the things that they want to do to, to create art. In Cuba, you can't do that. It's very rare. Um, the, the food in Cuba, that was the biggest surprise. I love Cuban food. One of my favorite cuisines on planet Earth. I think it's one of the best. Yeah. It was horrible in Cuba, like nonstop horrible. It was just time after time, the food was horrible. And it's because you can't go to somebody's house and have a Cuban meal with them. You can only eat at cafes or shop at supermarkets that are built only for tourists. Because Cubans don't go to supermarkets. They get their food given to them. And therefore, they can't really shop for proper ingredients. And if they do, they only eat that with their families on rare occasions. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole mindfuck. And it's, uh, it was a really, really sad place. It was very, very, very saddened by the whole experience there. And to me, you know, growing up in Miami for a lot of my life, it felt in like an extra punch in the gut because I grew up around a lot of Cubans. Um, Cubans are like my Latinos that I'm familiar with, even though I'm not Latino by any aspect, but I, you know, a lot of my good friends are Latino and I grew up around that culture. So, um, or sorry, are Cuban. And I grew around a lot of that Cuban, Cuban culture and being there and knowing how close we actually are to the United States and like how these people are trapped, but so close, they are so close to Florida, 90 miles at the closest point. It's like, man, it kills you on the inside. It kills you because it's just like they, they know that they're just trapped. It's just being in a jail. 
And these are good people. These are really good people with good morals, good familiar values, like really solid quality people that want to work. They want to put in, they want to learn. They like really, really, really good people, quality human beings. And they're just trapped in, in pretty much an open air prison. And it's just sad. It's super sad. See, but I would argue that that actually, obviously you had a b bad experience there, but I would argue that it's, I don't know if right, good is the right word here, but it was an experience that was educational for you because you have an insight that probably most of the world doesn't. I mean, obviously the majority of the world knows that Cuba is not great, but I think everyone, me included, thought that it was gradually getting better now and everything's on the up and up and tourism's allowed and, and Americans can go in. And they're bringing more money in, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, but you have actually insight that you know. I think the majority of the world doesn't. So, I mean, obviously you had a bad experience, but I think it was also a good experience in a way where you got some insight and some education. That yeah, it's again, uh, most of us wouldn't. I, I would never say that I regret it. I'm not sad about the experience. I'm very, very happy that I went. I got to see that and make yeah. the connections that I did with the few people that I really connected with there. Um, but it just opened my eyes to the realities, like the sort of cruel realities of the world. And uh, it was the first trip. I mean, this was also back in 2017. So things might have changed for the better since then. I don't know. Um, I haven't really been in the loop. But I don't know if they've gotten better or worse. But it's just, man, it's like the simple things of like the government doesn't let you use Internet, period. You have to go to a park to use Internet. Like you have to go to a park to illegally use Internet. It's nuts. It's crazy. Like the level of poverty, it's a totally different level of poverty there. It's something else. It's like enforced poverty because they're trying to make everybody live in a way that the government deems they should live. So it's, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I 100% agree. Like I, I'm glad I went. I learned a lot there. But it's one of those places I would, I only promote people to go there. If people ask me, hey, should I go to Cuba? Or how was your experience in Cuba? I only tell them, like, only go to Cuba if you're planning on leaving Havana. If you're only planning on going to Havana, drinking your whiskey, smoking a Cuban cigar, and driving around in an old car, don't do it. Just don't do it. It's not worth it. It's just not worth because yeah. at that point, all you're doing is you're just contributing to the, the, the faulty system they have. The more people that travel out there and see the things that I saw, the more those stories will get passed on and hopefully, eventually, maybe bring about change. Maybe. <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. So, I mean, on the, on the flip side of that, where was your favorite place to go? Or I do, I do. Israel is my number one, place. but it's always a cop-out because I'm from, I'm technically from there, but I always tell people <laughs> I'm biased. I preface yeah, it though biased, by saying that I really think Israel is out of, out of the 50 countries I've been to so far, like the most amazing country in the world. I think it's totally, uh, misdisplayed in, in the media and in news to be like a war zone when it really is not at all. And it's just a gorgeous, incredible place that I really, really love. Um, but outside of Israel, it's, I think, the Philippines. Either the Philippines or Sri Lanka. Um, the Philippines has become, like, a, just a third home for me at this point. It's like, I feel home here. You know, it's so much so where I felt the, comfortable enough staying here rather than going back to the United States in the middle of a pandemic that's unprecedented to ever, ever happen in any, any of our lifetimes. Like, to that level, that's how comfortable I feel here. So, um, yeah. I love the culture here. I love the people here. I love the food. I love, I love everything. I, I love everything about this country, the goods, the bads, everything in between. Um, 
And then Sri Lanka is sort of like my my backup boo. She's like my side baby, like my side chick that I love so much. Because I just lived there for three months prior to this trip. But it was like Sri Lanka was like Africa to me, but in like a tangible little basket, like a little island that you could just have everything you had in Africa in one place. Like you drive around that island, you have leopards and elephants and water buffalo, cobras, crocodiles, just crazy animals, jungles everywhere. Like in the middle of the capital city of Colombo, monkeys, like these rare species of monkeys just hopping around and like massive monitor lizards the size of Komodo dragons just walking around the city. Like it's such a wild place for me, like a person who loves wildlife and animals. It was heaven. It was absolute heaven. It was like the best, most rich, like wildlife experiences I've ever had in my life took place there. Just amazing, amazing experiences every single day. So I always say that my favorite country in the world would be a mix between like Philippines and Sri Lanka. If somehow the two could come together. Oh man. Cause the people in both countries are just incredible. If only, if, if only. only. Yeah. <laughs> if only we could combine the yeah. two together. <laughs> so you did, I know in Israel, you did half of Shvili Israel, which is basically the, uh, it's a trail that takes you from the south to the north um, of a very small country, roughly the size of Jersey. But I think like, I don't know exactly. Uh, the like total month, month uh, or the exactly. total trail ranges One. between like two months at the, probably the fastest end, maybe like a month in three weeks is the fastest you could really do it um, to some people take up to three months to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it depends on the pace that you're really? going at and wow. how many stops you do. Um, it took, I mean, I only did half. I didn't even really do a half-half. I made it all the way down to Tel Aviv from the north. So I, I had a little bit over a half to do, maybe uh, maybe another 65%, 75% to finish. Um, it's kibbutz done in the north, uh, um, like right under Mount Helmon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, because I know the the Pacific Crest Trail, which is it's a trail on the north of the west coast and starts on the border of California and Mexico, goes all the way north into California, Oregon, and then Washington and stops on the Washington Canadian border. And that I think yeah. takes roughly five months. If, and and that's just a crazy trail. It goes through the deserts and it, it just mountains. And I think you go up. Uh, I don't know if you have to, but I think you can go through Mount Washington, um, uh, which is uh, the highest point in California and in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or sorry, no, Mount Washington. Wait, yeah, I thought in, it was Rainier. Mount Whitney. Uh, maybe it is Mount Whitney. No, Rainier is Rainier is just. I actually climbed Rainier years back which was a fun experience but whitney whitney mm -hmm. is actually supposedly much easier um but it is a little bit higher i think like rainier is like fourteen thousand four hundred and ten feet if i'm not mistaken and i think whitney is like 14 500 it's like something like 100 or 200 feet different not, nothing major but um wow that's a crazy mountain so it's a crazy thing and the people do it in like yeah, yeah, in, in in five months. So, yeah, I thought I thought the. the I'm sure you could do the Israel one in a month if you out. if you wanted to, because I mean, like that. At least the first part of that trail, you could pretty much run it yeah. if you wanted to. There's very very short um, detours, 
it just depends on your physical fitness. I, I think the average person probably competes it from north to south, all the way from the north of Israel to the south south. They do it in about two months. That's like the average pace. But you could definitely somebody who's extremely physically fit and is sort of racing. You could probably do it in a month. I would. It, it could be possible. It was for me the most physically demanding thing. Still to the point, I've I've never done anything more physically demanding than that in my life, and it was formative and life changing, like by every every means of it, it was. Hands down, one of the most amazing things I've ever done. It was incredible. Would you want to do something similar? Like, would you want to do like the the Appalachian Trail or the PCT or Continental? Um, I don't know. For me, like the the Israel National Trail, because I never finished it. You know, I stopped it because the third Intifada was starting around that time, which is it's sort of like a season of when Palestinian militants. Uh, wage war on Israeli citizens. So it, my parents, even though a lot of people who started with me at the time finished the trail regardless, because it doesn't take you through any dangerous areas. Um, my parents forced me to come back home because I was only 19 at the time. So I still had to listen to them from some aspect. Like I didn't want them to completely disown me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the irony is that they both Israeli. <laughs> they both grew up in Israel because they live in the U.S. They were like, no, you need to get home and you come back to the U.S. I was like, Oh my God, let me finish this thing. I need a, like the amount of work that I put in to do this thing over a course of a month. I was ready to take on the negative desert. I was ready to go in. Um, so that is like a chapter of my book in life that I haven't finished. That is just sitting there open on, on, unclosed that I really, really feel like I need to do before I can do anything else. Um, and at the time, Tel Aviv Tel Aviv pretty much is what I have left. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and at the time, I, I did it with the anticipation of, okay, I'm going to do this as a precursor to maybe doing the Appalachian Trail, because a lot of people actually do the Israel National Trail as a precursor to the Appalachian Trail. It's sort of like a test and a, a trial, because it's way easier than the Appalachian Trail. Um, but nowadays, my my pivot has focused completely to something else. And uh, the biggest goal, my biggest bucket list item is to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. That's like my my top of my thing is what I'm trying to do. Um, originally I wanted to, the goal was to try to do it almost a year from right now. Like by the time I turned 25, I wanted to, I, I turned 25 June 4th, 2021. And I wanted to climb the mountain and have my birthday on the top of the mountain or somewhere, you know, near the summit or even on the summit if possible. Um, that was the goal. I don't know what the whole COVID, how much that's going to affect things a year from now. I have no idea. So I don't know, but the, I've been sort of slowly training and starting to shift focus of like, prioritizing everything on YouTube to more of my health and fitness as of recent. I'm really trying to train my body both mentally and physically to be able to prepare myself for the climb. So that's something that I really want to do in the near future. So I had, um, I had a guest on, I think it was like a month, maybe two months ago, uh, Nelson Dellis. He's a uh, grand master memory champion. This guy is incredible. Like he, He'll remember like five decks of cards, like each and every card, and yeah, incredible. And I don't, I don't know how you, how how he does what he does, but he's uh, unbelievable. He wins. He's I think he was a champion in the U.S. four time champ. But anyway, he he does um, he leads expeditions to Kilimanjaro, and he actually you know we were talking a little bit, and uh, you know, I told him that if he does one next year. You know, I'd be happy to join. So, <laughs> hey, man, that's uh, it's an opportunity. That's uh, he, could, he, he does this every year. So, you know, I'd be happy to join. And definitely, man, if if uh, 
you know, your birthday. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm definitely down. I've been looking for a sort of group of people to come along with. One of my big goals that I want to try to do is, again, with like with the climb to Kilimanjaro, I really want to try to make it more about, like less about myself and more about um, other people and trying to climb for somebody other than myself. Yeah. So I, I wanted to try to find some sort of cause, something, and a group of people to climb up, preferably like a group of creative people. Uh, to come and create content along the journey and raise money for an effort. But when I started planning it, when I moved to New York uh, around a year ago and the logistics of trying to plan a climb (laughs) to the tallest tree standing mountain in the world and do it to like for like 10 or 15 other creators was like such a crazy task that I just ended up letting it go. And was like, okay, I need to first need to focus on losing weight and getting my body actually prepped to be able to handle a climb to this thing. And then I can start focusing on other things. <laughs> For sure, I'm bro. down. Let me know. Um, I'm definitely down. I'm. Uh, I I used to. I was like. I was really getting into mountaineering a few years back. You know, I, I climbed Shasta and, and Rainier, and um, I climbed years back um, uh, Fiorica and um, in Chile. And um, yeah, I don't know. Just past few years, I just I haven't been able. But I have like. I have like the bucket list, Kilimanjaro's on it, um, Cotopaxi, Ecuador. There's a few mountains that I want to do. And actually, I was planning to do Cotopaxi this year, but obviously now it's possible. So Kilimanjaro, it's going to be the one. I think, I feel like one of the things that I need for the climb is just like a supportive group. So, you know, like having people that you can bounce off of that you're training with together to get to the top and that you can count on to keep pushing you mentally. To get there because i think the physical aspect is i have a really high pain tolerance like i can during the shooting slide i was literally like bleeding non-stop for my feet with blisters just like just open wounds that kept on like breaking open and just bleed like my feet were disgusting by the end of it the last day when i walked from natania to tel aviv it was about 30 kilometers on the beach i limped the entire way there and then just couldn't walk for two days after um and that was after <laughs> that would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it with my twenty kilogram backpack that I yeah. that I had on me. Um, yeah, but that, like that's the, one of the biggest things is having that supportive friend group. I did Shvili Sled by myself. I did it completely by myself. I hopped with I like group hopped, but having nobody around you to keep you going is very very difficult. So I think one of the key aspects for Kilimanjaro, like having people you can talk to, you can feel the pain with. You can do it together. It's something that I really, really want to experience. Yeah, man. That's, uh, yeah, we'll definitely, yeah. we'll definitely try and set something up, man. Let's see. Um, you know, in one of your videos, this is a little bit of a, of a detour, but on one of your videos, I remember I saw that you start, you, you kind of, quote unquote, came out of the closet about where you're from, which is, you know, it's weird because. I don't think any other nationality kind of hides where they're from. You know, no one from Sweden is is, is doing a video. Okay, guys, I have to admit, I'm guys, Sweden. listen, I'm Swedish. But I'm sorry to for tell some you. Reason, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> if you haven't noticed by the blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, let me tell you. But if for some reason there is a tendency, especially overseas with with Israelis uh, to hide their identity a little bit because it, it, everything's so political around, around the country and you were saying that you got 
you know, a lot of, uh, or some at least, hate comments or hate mail just for the fact that you are Jewish or from Israel. But you kind of, there was a certain point, I think, where you just embraced it. You're like, fuck it, this is who I am, you know, and you started putting out a lot of content around that and maybe being a bit more open. So it's kind of like twofold. One is it's insane that any country or any person of any identity has to hide, right, who they are. A and then B. I mean, I guess now that you've embraced it, do you still receive any oh, hate mail oh, yeah. comments from people? <laughs> I am I am the butt of the internet's like Clearly. anger and frustration because I'm I'm a brown looking Jew. Like I I'm I hit all the marks of what pisses people off in general. Which, yeah, which just, is like, half, most which is half the country. Like most people think that Jews are just white people. They just think yeah. Jews and white people are just synonymous when they, they don't realize no. like a majority of Jews, at least in Israel, that live in Israel are, and it's a slight majority, it's not a huge majority, but a majority of Jews are, are brown, more tan skin. Um, but I, I hit, for when you look at me from the outside, when you don't know anything about me, especially if I make a video where I'm taking a stance on something a little more, or which I rarely do because I, I try not to piss people off on purpose. But if I'm ever making something that's a little more provocative or taking a stance or talking about something historical, Oh man, the fact that I look Indian, that I openly talk about the fact that I'm a Jew, and like that I'm taking a stance on something, it just opens the door for just vile amounts of anti-Semitic comments about just like the racists of the internet just come out in droves. I've been subjugated to like racism from every aspect of the of the table on through YouTube comments, but I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me because I'm not a person who looks into it too much. Like I realize that ninety percent of the Uh, 99% of the people I would say would never, ever, ever have the gumption to say it to your face ever. And that 1% that would, would probably feel horrible immediately after. Like they would never, ever say these things to your face. It's just not something that they would say. Um, And so I just treat it as not real people. I just treat it as jokes. And so I love to mess with them. I fuck around with those comments all the time. It's one of my favorite joys. Is when somebody comments for me to go kill myself or that I'm a disgusting Indian or a, a dirty Jew, it's coming back like a kissy face emoji, like, hey, what are you doing later? Or, like, I just try to confuse them. Like, I like to confuse them and just make them feel uncomfortable, like, as much as I possibly can with the stuff that they're commenting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, from the second I openly talked about the fact that I was Jewish on my YouTube channel, I, I immediately, immediately started receiving, like, hate comments about it. And it's never stopped. Uh, it's under pretty much any of my big videos that you see. Uh, you'll you'll be able to see comments that are pretty vile and nasty, but it doesn't bother me. It's not it's not something that puts me off at all. I see it as part of the experience. You just need to have really tough skin when you're on YouTube. Like that's the last thing that bothers me about the job that I have. <laughs> like the things that bother me more is about YouTube like throttling views and not sending my videos to my subscribers. That's what pisses me off. Like the hey comments are such a small part of it that like I don't. It doesn't even, it's honestly part of the experience. I kind of enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> so, I mean, as far as YouTube, you, like, it, it's it's almost like it's, it's um, you know, it's a crapshoot. It's, it's like a Russian roulette, right? Like you had, you say you had all these videos up and then magically one day they decided to put your stuff on, on the front page quadrupled your views and then but you, there's no magical formula like you don't know why they chose you 
and why that happened, but it did. And then that kind of propelled you forward to get more views, more people. And it's just, it's inertia, right? It just, it's something that starts and it keeps growing and growing and growing just by the fact that it's in movement. But you kind of have to have that first push. And that's the only way for you to actually monetize it. So now that that did happen, you know, maybe I've always kind of been interested, like what, how do YouTubers actually monetize it? You know, is it by the, the, the amount of views? Is like views the most important or is uh, sponsorship and working with brands the most important or uh, selling merchandise or I don't know, what, what are the ways to... Well, so it's, there's no one answer that tells all because every channel is different um, and every personality is different. Every genre on YouTube is different. They'll make money, money in different ways. But I try to describe it in uh this is how I usually tell people. It's almost like a, having a sadistic relationship with your parent where you know your parent or your boss. Your parent is just constantly shitting on you. Like your boss is constantly shitting on you. But then like all of a sudden he'll give you like a raise. And then just tell you that you're worthless. And you're not worth it. You're not doing good. And just like take everything away from you. And then boom, he'll give you a bigger raise than you ever had before. Uh, it's like that's the kind of relationship that you have with YouTube. Um, when it comes to like the monetizing the videos and this affects almost all channels equally doesn't matter what the topic is they're getting better i'll say that they're getting a lot better they just rolled out a feature now where we can like pretty much self-certify our videos ourselves which means the chances that our videos will get demonetized wrongfully is almost never going to happen um so they're getting better on that aspect and so that means that safety the safety net for making money off of youtube is getting better which means you could probably start making more money um, and yes, generally the way you make money is by the views, not the subscribers. The subscribers are sort of a means to bring in more views, right? Your, your video plays on the algorithm end and tries to rack up views via the algorithm. The subscribers aid in that, but sometimes the subscribers can actually be, uh, um, they can actually hurt that operation because it depends on where your subscribers are and their interests. Uh, they can actually deflect views from the videos and actually destroy the video instead of helping it. Uh, so it really depends, but there's features like the membership option where you can subscribe to a channel and become a member where you like, that's something where your subscriber actually does give you money. You can make money via platforms like Patreon where people can support you financially uh, every video or on a monthly basis. And then, yeah, like you said, like selling merchandise or sponsorships for me with a travel channel, a majority of the, the big money that I've made, has been off of the very few videos that I've had that have gone quote unquote viral um, on Facebook or on YouTube where they hit a million plus views, like 4 million, 3 million views. That's where you really see big, big money. Um, and then, yeah, through sponsorships, because then I'm able to request a flat rate for a video and I'm getting paid on top of making ad revenue off the video. Um, so it's, yeah, it could be really good. It could be really lucrative at times. Like right now, like I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, like revenue is down like 80 90 percent for channels like mine so it's not like right now it's not looking too hot but on a, on a general day on an aspect like in new york when i was living there it was really good i was making really really good money there my expenses were really high but i was able to you know mitigate that by paying only 600 dollars rent in williamsburg living in a really shitty apartment and just going out and making videos about everything and anything possible and i was able to make a genuinely pretty decent income like it was not too bad and doing sponsorships on the side and selling merchandise and closing all these deals and stuff. It was fantastic. Um, so it really depends. Like it, it depends on what you're doing. Like right now in the Philippines, since I went on this trip, I did Europe and then Sri Lanka and the Philippines, the ad revenue is just horrible. 
like the the ad rates are just just bad in general they're really really low compared to new york so making maybe you know one fourth one yeah one fourth of what i was making earlier and uh you just have to learn how to deal with it it's also like traveling here is a lot cheaper than living in new york city so um it just depends it really depends on the channel like people like david dobrik or philip defranco like big big channels of the youtube world they can make six figures in a day if they want to do it with a sponsorship you know, it just depends on what they close down. So it's uh, being a YouTuber is one of those things where there's literally no guidebook and there's no one answer answers at all for everyone. Everybody's channel is completely different from the next. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, uh, you know, I saw, I saw some numbers and figures that put Joe Rogan just off of YouTube. Just forget what all the other stuff. At around, I think there was Ooh, that's crazy fifty million a year, which makes makes sense. You know, he's the number one podcast, and uh, but who knows that all these numbers are just up in the air. It's just it's it's a it's a guesstimate at best, in my opinion. But yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, revenue model that I think people are still trying to figure out. But I don't know. It's 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 interesting. I'm uh you know I'm, I'm I've been an entrepreneur and uh, and now I'm kind of like doing podcasts and it's interesting to see different um, avenues in which you can I guess garner revenue. I know for now I'm doing this, like you said, kind of, I like it. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy uh, making these connections, uh, learning. It's just, it's, it's a great opportunity that wasn't available like I said, even 10, 15 years ago. So I enjoy it. If something comes of it, great. If not, I can keep doing this. For, <laughs> I keep doing this for 30, 40 more years, not make a cent off it. And it's, and it's fine. Like it's something I enjoy. So no one's, no, I can't get fired. The only way for me to stop it is if people say like, hey, I don't want to come and, and have a, a fun conversation with you or a deep or meaningful conversation. That's the only way. Other way otherwise, I'm happy to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, it's it's also it's not an overnight thing. It's it's a gradual thing. Every time I'm oh, okay, cool. Like people over here are listening to it, and I have a new subscriber there, and it's just a cool thing to see how it's growing and how more and more people are listening. For me, it's it's the, the coolest part is just seeing people from all these different countries. Like initially, it was like you would see, you would see like maybe three four countries. It'd be like. U.S., Israel, uh, Sweden, India, and, and the U.K., and now you see like countries in Africa, places in Asia. Like, oh, that's really cool. Like, someone in a country so so far away is listening to my voice and then to the guest voice, and you know, getting some real quality um, out of it. So that's something. Yeah, I man, it's a super cool process. Like. Especially like when you get to look at analytics like that, I get to do that in my YouTube channel. Like look at the back end and see who's watching from where. It's just so crazy. And so especially when you take in like the the minutes listened or the minutes watched, like it's some absorbent number like like ninety million minutes watched across my YouTube channel or something like that. It might be higher or lower. I don't remember. It's like that's insane. <laughs> Imagine Jeez. ninety million minutes. Ninety like nine million or ninety something like that. Ninety million is like has been spent on my face or something that I've done. It's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, you have 50, what, 150,000 subscribers? That's a man. That's you know, that, it's crazy because these these numbers nowadays that that people have. It's for a company back in the day, and if you're a brand, because nowadays you're a brand, everything is a brand, and for a brand to get 150,000 people to consume it, it would take years if, if, if that ever even happened, right? Whereas now you have people who like yourself do a travel vlog or they'll be cooking in their kitchen or an unboxing video or gaming, which I will mm -hmm. never ever understand, but that's a different story. And they have hundreds of thousands or millions of people subscribed watching every video they do. And it's just, it's a, it's a brand new world that, yeah, I think if, if you're young, smart, savvy, and like you said, you don't necessarily need to go the route of, of higher education. I mean, you definitely should if you want, but that's not the only way nowadays. Uh, there's just a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful world where you really don't have to be locked into this one sort of aspect that, I mean, it, it, you would say it's like the mainstream. I think it's uh, I think it's starting to change now. I think more people are opening up to it not being the mainstream, which I think is a good thing. But it's beautiful that you could. It's beautiful that anybody, like some Joe Schmo, some schmuck like me, can pick up a camera and make a living, fucking making videos, traveling around the world. Like that's amazing. That's unprecedented. I'm I'm like I feel absolutely blessed and grateful that I can, and that other people can do it. Because hell, ten years ago you could not do this. Fifteen years ago you could not do this. It wouldn't be a thing. For me to be as young as I am and have had had all these amazing experiences, I feel so privileged, so blessed to be in the position that I'm in. It's uh, it's it's really amazing, and I'm so excited to see what this what this will do for future people, like for future generations. I wonder if it'll get harder, if it'll get easier, like how how all this stuff will evolve because we're really living in the sort of beginnings of it. It's almost like trying to explain to somebody what TV was when TV first came out. It's like a whole new age of content intake entertainment that we're going through right now and we're only on the beginning we're only on the first fold of it this is just the start so it's uh it's really really exciting it's just a very exciting time to be alive in general yeah there's a guy called um well, love that guy name, but his channel is called primitive technology this guy is yeah dude he doesn't <laughs> say a word in all of his videos He's got millions and millions of subscribers, millions of views. And this guy builds all these things in the outback. I'm not sure where he is. It looks like maybe Australia or somewhere in America in the South. And he just builds huts and, 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 and pots and, and all these different things from scratch. Literally, he takes clay, water. He's unbelievable. Like his hands are amazing. He literally builds things from scratch, tools, everything. And he can sustain himself just by doing his hobby well, putting out that content. And I'm sure he makes, and I think he actually, I think recently I saw he put a book out, um, which again, I'm sure it will do fairly well. So it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brand new world. You can literally, especially in these niche markets, you know, like um, knitting, I'm sure there's people that make a lot of money just from showing how to knit or some, Again, whatever your niche is, if you're good at it, you can leverage that by putting it out on, on, on YouTube or social media, and you can make a decent living doing what you love. 
Yeah, I'll tell you the beautiful thing about the guy, the primitive technology guy, just to divert back to that for a sec. He, not only did he create like a dream job for himself, but he kickstarted an entire economy, not just a genre on YouTube, but a straight up economy for people around the world. Um, I mean, because of his channel, because of the videos that he created, his first initiative with that, it inspired tons of people, especially across the developing world in places like Asia. In Southeast Asia to make videos similar to his in India. And those people's channels have blown up and it's provided so much money and resources. There's wonder stories about how these things have come up. Because these are things that like what he does is a is a novelty for him. It's a hobby. He does it, he's he lives in the, you know, in the developed world, and he's able to do that as a side thing. At least that's what he was doing in the beginning. But these other channels, it's part of their life. Like they do that stuff. They go out in the jungle and they build this stuff on a regular basis, or they have the knowledge. And so they just record what they would usually do, and now they're able to make tons of money doing it. And it's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Really awesome. I mean, I guess I have sure. a final, you know, question for you. Dude, we've been, yeah, we've been doing this for a uh, hundred. <gasps> I think this might be the longest Modern. podcast I've done so far. It just, it, but it just, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Me man, too, man. I fun. love having I, uh, conversations I like this. this. My favorite. Minutes easily, but um, <laughs> um, what would you say was if you know, kind of putting on the spot? I know if you can just uh, think quick about this one, but what would you say is the greatest lesson you kind of learned traveling, seeing different cultures, meeting different people, eating all the different foods? You know, is there like some sort of common thread that you've seen? with all the travel you've done, is there one thing where you've just like, wow, this, I, I never would have thought this if I haven't. If I, if yeah. I yeah. There's, there's definitely one thing that comes to mind and that's just that this, the world is not the way that people want you to think the world is like people who have never traveled are the people that are going to tell you that travel is dangerous. And people who have never like been out in the world are the ones that are going to tell you, you need to be careful and to not go out into the world to stay away from traveling. Um, and the one thing that I've learned on the road, the biggest thing I've learned is that that's a false, that's just, that's false. It's not true. Um, the world is not as dangerous as people make it out to be even in the most dangerous of dangerous places. Not that I'm saying I've been to the most dangerous of dangerous, but I've been to some places that are regarded to as extremely dangerous and they're not anywhere as close to what you would think they would be. There's precautions to be taken around the world. There's there's genuinely people out there that do want to take advantage of you, that want to hurt you, that want to do bad things to you. But inherently, the world is not an evil place. It's not a dangerous place. Um, and I feel like a lot of people fall complacent to that. Their, their immediate neighborhood surrounding and the people around them are the safest place they could possibly be. And in reality, there's strangers out there in the world that are willing to embrace you with love and with kindness and with hospitality that you don't even know. Um, that will completely change your worldview and they'll make you question everything, you know, and that's, that's been the most formative and the biggest theme across the last six years of my life. Traveling has been that the world is inherently good. It's an inherently good place. There's a lot of very, very, very good people out there. It's just the shitty ones that give the world a bad rap. Um, but it's not all doom and gloom. It's not, it's not a bad place. We, we have a very, beautiful, humble, uh, you know, incredible species, you know, that we, that we are and that we live alongside and our planet is amazing. And that's been like the central theme of what, 
well, all these trips and adventures that sort of keep on playing up. <laughs> and on that beautiful note, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end the podcast. Thanks for um, having me on, man. I hope we can do it again. Come in on the podcast. Uh, no, definitely. We definitely will, man. Um, you know, we'll do, we'll, we'll stay in touch. We'll try to <laughs> do a podcast on the top of the mountain. <laughs> next year, 2021. And, um, yeah. Oh, that'll be awesome. That that might. I wonder if that. What if you be the smoke weed while doing podcast a podcast at the highest point in the world? <laughs> uh, no, me neither. No, 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 no. I don't want. I don't want to get arrested in Tanzania. That's not something I'm interested in. <laughs> no. Um. But yeah, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, where where can people find you on the different? Yeah. Uh, uh, anywhere you look, uh, the traveling clat, and that's traveling spelled the American way with one L, and clat spelled the. Stupid way, my way with two T's. <laughs> uh, or if you just look up CLAT, C L A T T, you'll find me anywhere you Google it or YouTube search it. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm on every social media platform possible. So it should be easy for you to find me if you are looking for me. Sweet. And I'll, 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 I'll add the links in the show notes as well. So make it easier for people. Yeah, man. So thanks for uh, coming on the show, talking about traveling, hopefully inspiring people that when this shit finishes, They'll be inspired to go out. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.